back in the 8th century B.C., 8th century B.C., Tiglath-Pileser III was no wimp, and he was certainly no angel. Assyria was in the midst of a civil war. He leveraged the chaos of that moment to seize the throne of Assyria in a bloody coup d'etat. He slaughtered the entire royal family, quickly consolidated consolidated his power, and he turned the Assyrian army, which was already the greatest fighting force in the world at that time, he turned it into a far more devastating military power. He professionalized the army, and then he set out to do to the rest of the world what he had to take over. And he just began to march through. He rolled right through the ancient Near East, Babylon, Chaldea, the Arabian Peninsula, Moab, Edom, Armenia, Asia Minor, Greece, Persia, the list goes on and on. And in 734 BC, Tiglath-Pileser III gathered his army and he turned his attention and he marched for Palestine. A quick side note, 200 years before this, Israel had had its own civil war. And it broke up as war into two countries. In the north, the northern half of the country, the name of the country became Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, that comes up in this passage. And the capital city of the northern empire after the, the civil war was Samaria. In the south, the southern kingdom after the civil war went by the name Judah. And, and sometimes they're called Ephraim, I'm sorry, Judah. And the capital of the southern kingdom is Jerusalem. Okay, so 200 years before, there had been, before Tiglath-Pileser III is marching at them, they had had their own. And you've got Judah here in the south, and then north you've got Israel. Israel looks up the northern kingdom, and they see Tiglath-Pileser III. They see the Assyrian army, the greatest army in the world. It's just wiped everything out. And now it's turned its attention <laughs> to these guys. So Israel looks just north of it is Syria. Gets confusing. Different. Syria, not Assyria. Assyria is the big bad guys. Syria is another little guy. Israel looks over at Syria and says, we need to form NATO. <laughs> we need to form a northern treaty organization and we need to bind and get wiped out. But we're not strong enough. We need another partner. And so they decided, let's ask Judah. So there's three countries bound together through a treaty to present a united front and to fight the big bad meanies, the Assyrians. Judah thought that was a stupid idea. They were not going to pick a fight with Assyria. They were like, what are three mice going to do against this elephant? So Judah says no. Now, as a result of this, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria get mad at the king of Judah. They're like, we need you. Together, we might can affect this. You're not going to join with us. So they decided that they were going to take their armies. And before Assyria gets here, they were going to march on Judah and create a coup. 
and replace King Ahaz, the king that led them to resist the treaty, with their own king who would then lead Judah to form the treaty with them. That's Isaiah chapter 7. It's in this very tense, very dangerous geopolitical situation that our passage this morning comes up. Look at verse 2, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is another name for Israel. Syria is in league with Israel. The heart of King Ahaz, that's the king of Judah, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So here's King Ahaz, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he and his whole kingdom are in a panic because they're torn between two fears. On the one hand, they've just received intelligence reports of large-scale troop movements on their border. Syria and Israel have joined together to march against, send in the Green Berets, and to have a regime change. And that's terrifying to them. But on the other hand, they're even more terrified that if they join with them and put up a fight against Assyria, Assyria is going to wipe them out. So they've got these two like fears that are lined up with, against them. Now, just imagine if you were King Ahaz. Imagine if you had to choose between, well, if I join with those guys, we're going to really tick off Assyria and Assyria is going to just commit genocide. But if I don't join with those guys, then those two guys are going to take me out. They're going to send in their, they're going to depose me, kill me, and replace me with their own king. Now, while that's all going on, Ahaz, who is a good military commander, is out inspecting the water system of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a capital on a hill. A city built on a hill is generally a good defensive position, except for the fact that Jerusalem's water supply is a series of above-ground aqueducts that any attacking army can get to. And so what happens is if it's an army, it can cut off the water supply. That's the end. So he's out inspecting this water supply, and notice verse 3, God tells Isaiah, go meet with King Uzziah. So God tells his prophet, hey, the king is scared to death. He's inspecting the most vulnerable part of the defense system. Go and talk to him. And their conversation in that moment filled with fear where life is on the line, that conversation between them is the center of Isaiah chapter 7. The king is scared to death. The prophet meets him. And notice what he says in verse 4. Careful. Be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart faint. Now, it's important that you recognize this is not a Hallmark card. What I mean by that is this is not a plaque on the wall in your house that says don't fear and is related to nothing. When he says to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart faint, he means with regard to Assyria, with regard to the water supply with regard to Israel and Syria. He means in this particular situation, this is like coming up, this is like having a child who's about to have a surgery and you're saying to your child, don't fear. You mean in this exact moment. There are other moments where the child should be afraid, but in this moment, you're gonna be okay. 
Then he goes on in verses four and five, and he says, Isaiah says, all right, so he says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart faint. God knows the fierce wrath, anger of resin in Syria. God knows. He knows what's going on here. I know that they've devised, he says, evil against you. I know that they're planning a coup. I know that they are planning, it says, to conquer your kingdom, Beal as king in your place. I know about all of that, King Ahaz. And then in verse 7, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. These terrible things that are being planned against you, they're not going to happen. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, that's a kind of a complicated thing if you don't know these names. But here's basically what's happening in a poetic way, in a way that King Ahaz definitely wouldn't have been. God is calling Ahaz to make a decision. He's saying, Ahaz, I know the threat. I know it. I know the plan. You are the target of a coup. I know about the evil plot against you. Here's the deal, Ahaz. Rezin heads up Syria and Damascus. Rezin is the king of, that leads kind of those two northern groups. Pekah heads up Ephraim, Samaria. Who heads up Judah and Jerusalem? If you do not stay, you will not head up Judah and Jerusalem. So basically in that weird little poetry, what you've got is you've got a, a country, a capital, and a king. And so God, he does this kind of poetic thing where he says, here's a country, capital, king. Here's a country, capital, king. Then he says, all right, Judah, Jerusalem, who's going to be the head? You will be if you stand firm. If you do not stand firm, you will not be. He's saying to him, look, in some con in different conflicts have different pivots they hinge around. This conflict, the pivot, hinges around, will you stand firm and trust God? You will trust God. You have to pick. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God, to believe God, to rely on his promises, to lean on God, to let God take care of your enemies? Because if you do, King Ahaz, if you stand firm with God, God will stand firm with you. Or are you going to trust Assyria? Because he had decided the way out of this situation, the way to not let Assyria genocide him, the way to, to resist um, Israel and Syria, is he was going to send like diplomats around everything to get to Assyria to say, I'll, I'll partner with you. So he decided he was going to make his partner the big bad Assyria. And God is saying to Ahaz, look, you got to pick. Are you going to call on Assyria or are you going to call on me? Are you going to trust me to save you in this moment or are you going to trust Assyria to save you in this moment? The end of verse 9. If you are not firm in your faith with God, you're not going to be firm. Like you're not going to be a protected king. You're not going to be established as a king. You will not be the head of Israel. So in this particular situation, Ahaz has to decide, will he trust God 
or trust Assyria? Will he have faith in God in light of the fact that Assyria is out there and these other threats are out there? Ahaz says to God's invitation, no, I'm not going to trust you. This happens in between verses 9 and 10. We don't have any account of him actually saying no, but somehow in between verses 9 and 10, it's quite obvious that his answer was no. And he might have been like some people, just straight up, nope, not going to do it. Or he might have been like other people, super passive aggressive about it. But somehow he says no. In response to this in verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. God didn't take no for an answer. He gave him another run at it. That's pretty kind, considering Ahaz's life is on the line. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, and he says, okay, okay, what do you want? Ask me for a sign. Ask for any sign you want, dude. High as heaven, deep as Sheol, anything. Ask me to prove that I will keep my word to you. That I will, because this is a pretty serious moment, right? Like if I make the wrong choice here, I'm facing genocide or I'm facing a coup. God in his grace says, okay, look, I know I'm asking you for a huge move here. So would a sign help? Ahaz piously refuses. Look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, oh, I would not ask that. I've not put the Lord to the test. Now, that's a ruse. Ahaz is shrouding his unwillingness to have faith in God. He's shrouding it in a veil of piety because there are verses in the Bible that say, do not put the Lord your God to test. Sometimes in the Bible, when people ask for signs, but sometimes God gives people signs. I mean, maybe you've heard of the story of Gideon. He asked for a sign, not because he was refusing God, not because he was refusing to believe, not because he doubted, but because he wanted to make doubly certain the path he was taking was God's will. And in that case, God is happy to give a sign. One time Janelle and I found ourselves in a similar situation to that with Gideon. I've told this story before. We were, we were, we were fairly newly married. I think we had been married maybe three years We were in preacher grad school. We were both in school, and I had applied for a job. I was in New Orleans. We went to seminary in New Orleans, and I had applied for a job to be the pastor of First Baptist Church, Berwick, Louisiana, which is almost two hours south of New Orleans, which puts you in swamps. And um, they they had offered me the job to be the pastor there, and they offered to pay me 100, well, they didn't know this, I mean, but what it added up to was $100 less than Janelle and I could survive on. We, not like a fancy budget, like a subsistence, not be able to pay the bills. But Janelle and I thought that we were supposed to go to first, that I was supposed to be the pastor there. So all we needed to do was we prayed at our little, you know, Charlie Brown table that we had in our house. And we prayed, God, if you want us to go there, show us a sign. We got up, we said amen, I walked to the mailbox, and I am not lying to you, there was a letter in the mailbox from an address I didn't recognize that said, "Um, Dear Aubrey, my name's so-and-so, you do not know me and I don't know you, but God told me to give you $100 a month until I die or you graduate. It was exactly how much we needed. 
to the penny. Now, coincidence, to which I would say, man, you have a lot more faith in coincidence than the obvious in this situation. God is kind like that. He, he does that. And I know that there are many other people in our church who've experienced moments where you wanted to follow God. You were willing to trust him. You just couldn't tell what the way was and you ask him for a sign and he gives it. That's not what this is. God himself says, ask for a sign. Oh no, I could never put you through the trouble. Like you've been engaged with some people where you're trying to give them a gift and they're like, oh no, 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 no. I couldn't do it, right? This is, you've recognized this kind of pride before. There's a difference between people who believe but need help and people who do not want to believe and come up with a Bible verse or some other fancy excuse to really just shroud the fact they're not willing to believe. So Isaiah tells Ahaz, okay, then it's over. You've made your choice. You've refused to trust in God. You've refused to call on God, to serve God, to believe God. And so God is going to give a sign anyway. But instead of a sign that's going to help you in your belief, it's going to be a sign that he's going to judge you. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the sign. A young woman was going to give birth. Um, at this point, it, it's not necessarily a miracle. Um, uh, this word is most likely, it's easily translated a young maiden. The sign here is that a child's going to be born whose mother's going to name the child Emmanuel. This was King Hezekiah. If you keep reading in the book of Isaiah, King Hezekiah comes next. And he's so much better than Ahaz. In fact, at the end of the book of Isaiah, King Hezekiah, and he's inspecting the water system, and Isaiah comes out to meet him. And Isaiah says to him, hey, you've got to choose if you're going to trust in God. And he does trust in God. And he becomes a sign to the whole nation of Israel. Here's what it's like when you have a king that trusts in God. God himself is among us in those moments. God blesses us and God protects us. And so the whole nation of Israel got this appetizer for what it would be like when God fulfilled that promise in a way bigger way than anybody could have ever imagined. That's what our gospel passage was. There was this other time that this other child was born to a virgin whose mother named him, not father, the father named him Jesus, whose mother named him Emmanuel. This was Ahaz's moment of decision though. And Ahaz refused. And so God did to Ahaz and his generation what he did to Israel's generation in the wilderness. When Israel was in the wilderness and a whole generation died because they refused to trust in God. Their entry into the promised land was conditioned on their belief and their willingness to stand firm and trust with God. Psalm 2 talks about how God will wreak havoc on nations that plot against him. But here in Isaiah, we see God will also fight against his own people, if in him. God will take up arms against his own people if they begin to act like the nations and they shroud it in some pious logic. Ahaz's moment of decision. And notice the form of disbelief for Ahaz was in a concrete moment where he decided to take a route seeking help instead of seeking God for help. Have you faced this moment? I have. As a young child, 
Again, these are stories I've told before. They're so formative in my life. As a young child, I had terrible nightmares. me Into my adolescence, and one day my dad, in his great wisdom, taught me to memorize 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. And he used this verse to help me to learn that there are moments in life where in the presence of fear, you can choose faith. This is King Ahaz, right? In a small little boy's way. My dad was teaching me. And so I would say this verse at night as I'd fall asleep, for God has not given me a spirit of fear. And, and I was having to choose, am I gonna believe this? As a teenager, at the end of my junior year of high school, I, um, I'm standing on the talking to my youth minister. I've been living a, a very hypocritical lifestyle. I go to church on Sundays and then I, I act like the rest of the world during the week and my youth minister is calling me out on that. And I remember him saying, what are you gonna choose? Are you gonna trust God and his ways? And I remember the fear. I was afraid I would lose my friends. I was afraid I'd be lonely. I was afraid I wouldn't really get the things in life that I really wanted and that I would just feel the ache of that. And, and in that moment, God called me to make a choice. Will I trust in God in his way or this other way? Later, I was dating Janelle. I was in love with Janelle. I wanted to marry Janelle. And one day, in a very distinctive way, I sensed that God wanted me to break up with Janelle instead of marry her. And I said, no. I couldn't do it. I loved her. Who gives up a love relationship because you think God told you to? <laughs> and I felt deep in my bones that I have to decide, am I going to go God's way or this other way? And there's a thousand pious ways I could have gotten out of it. Well, God gives you the desires of your heart. Janelle's a Christian. There's a whole bunch of ways. But a choice between, will I trust God or am I so afraid that if I don't stay with Janelle, somehow... I'm going to miss something in life. You see, look, I've learned in my life, God has a way of finding the thing that you love so much, and he leverages that thing to, to help you trust him. That's, Ahaz's biggest fear was his political power. And he, God brought him to this point. And he said, Ahaz, trust me. Or not, and Ahaz didn't. That's a sign. He's given us a sign of how much he loves us. Jesus, the virgin gave birth. The virgin gave birth to Emmanuel. He's given us a sign and we can look at the virgin birth. We're gonna celebrate it with pulling out all the stops this coming weekend, right? And we can look at that and say, holy moly, this God loves me. He kept his word. Look how much he loves me. And in the face of your deepest fears, when you find yourself in these decision points where you have to decide, am I going to go God's way or out of fear, am I not going to go God's way? Look to the sun. Look back to Jesus. He was born. He lived. He died. He rose from the dead. That's the sign. And let that sign inspire you that when you have to choose between giving up something you think will end you and God, you will never outgive God. 
Emmanuel, God has come to be with us and God is going to bring you, if he hasn't yet, to moments in your life where you have to decide between the thing that is the hardest for you, it might be your sexuality. Yourself deeply driven by sexuality that God says no to, to have sex with somebody outside of marriage, to have sex with somebody of the same gender. And it's terrifying to face that temptation. Well, if I say no to that, will I ever be happy? Will I ever get to be fulfilled? Look to the sign. You might find yourself at a place in life where you have an opportunity to secure your, to secure your livelihood in a, in a job that you don't think you should take because God is not leading you to take it. In these moments, why God do, does this with little children, he leads us along the way in life. And we never get to outgrow these decision moments. And you can never know when God's not going to bring you back to another one. Do you rely on God? Can you learn to look to Jesus Christ as the sign that he is reliable, that he is trustworthy? When... um. Again, I just, looking at my own life, God, he goes for the jugular. He finds that thing that you love so much. When I, never the smartest kid in the room. My brother was always the smartest kid in the room. And in my classes in, in, in elementary and junior high and high school and college, I was always eager and hardworking, but never one of the, the smarty pants. And then I wake up one day and I get an opportunity, uh, get accepted to Oxford University to do my PhD. And it, it massaged that insecurity inside of me that I'd lived with my whole life growing up with a brother who was a genius. And I was always just a few ticks down. And I got a chance to And God very clearly told me no. Because at this moment in my life, he had already worked that thing out with, can I keep Janelle right with him? But now he needed to grind away at the pride of intellect. So I said no. I turned down the opportunity to go to Oxford. And um, when 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 I'd done that with Janelle, it's interesting. When I did eventually give Janelle, surrender her to God, and I went to break up with her, God rescued all that. And he gave Janelle back to me. And I I ended up getting both. I obeyed God and got to marry Janelle. So when I said no to Oxford, I thought, well, surely that's the way this thing's going to work out again. But a year later, I got accepted to Cambridge. And I thought, well, that's what God's doing. He's giving me back this thing I gave to him. And my dad and I were walking around Cambridge when I was getting ready to start there. And he was saying, I don't know if you've ever been to Cambridge, but it's really romantic. It's amazing. And there's people punting on the river cam. And my dad says, why would anybody not want to go to Cambridge? And in that moment, God said to me again, no. And I had to all over again lay Isaac on the altar and say, God, I trust you. Now, those are some ways that God has done this to me in my life. And they were all moments where I had to pick between fear and faith out you. Are you facing things in your life where you're giving a pious excuse? There's nothing wrong with this. But really, you know that you're just not trusting in God. Be careful. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. 
God will deal with us if we continue to resist his grace. And I think the key thing to do in these moments is to keep looking at Jesus until you see that he's the sign, that God is faithful, that you can never outgive God, that his path is the path of life. Let's pray.